0: The Neuroscience of Nightmares. Tune in for more, only here, on the People Scientist Podcast. You are listening to the People Scientist, the podcast dedicated to helping us optimize our health, Hello, my People Scientist army, and welcome back to the People Scientist podcast for episode 135, where every week I arm us with some scientific evidence so we can all become a little bit smarter and a little bit healthier with every new episode. How are you feeling today? I hope you're feeling well. Thank you for bringing me into your day, and I hope that I can add something interesting for you to think about today. But before I jump into today's episode, I want to make a special shout out to two of my listeners that recently bought me coffee to say thank you for the show. So thank you, Stevie, and thank you, Tony, for the coffees. That kind gesture keeps me fueled and excited about continuing on with the podcast. So thank you so much. If you by chance also want to say thank you for the show by buying me a coffee, you can do so via the link in the description box to this episode. So what is the topic for today's 135th episode? Well, seeing as Halloween is one week away, I wanted to do a topic that was related to Halloween. And this one I'm excited about because I find it so interesting. Today we are going to dive into the neuroscience and psychology of nightmares. But before we do, as we always do, let's start off with a foregone fact where I share scientific finding from long ago. Dr. William Sweetser, back in 1820, wrote of nightmares in the New England Journal of Medicine. Now, I love how scientists used to write scientific articles back then. They wrote as though they were telling a story to the reader in a very personal way. Like, for example, quote, oh, it was the eve of a beautiful morning. As I heard the birds chirp, I pondered this nightmare I had the previous night. Well, let me tell you my thoughts on it as I sit here, etc., etc. So it's really quite fun to read these scientific articles back from the 1800s. So in 1820, Sweetser wrote that the phenomenon of nightmares back then was defined as a sensation exciting the idea of a weight lying upon the chest with a difficulty of breathing, which is often excessive. And these symptoms are always accompanied by some frightful dream. There were many names to describe this phenomenon of nightmares back then. In Latin, nightmares were called incubus or incubo, which directly translates to to lie upon. In English, in the early 1800s, nightmares were called mare riding or wizard pressing. Wizard pressing, that's interesting. As though they believed a nightmare was to do with some magical or superstitious phenomenon. Sweetser goes on to describe the potential causes of nightmares. Some believed that it was due to the congestion of blood in the brain, stagnation of this fluid in the large blood vessels, or congestion in the lungs. He believed it had to do with inhalation of air, that at some point, respiration would be obstructed in some way. He wrote, "...there is a deficiency in the quantity of atmospheric air inhaled to effect necessary change in the blood passage through the lungs." This blood is then unfit for the purposes of life, or partly Venus is to the different parts of the system. This induces a sense of suffocation. The fancy then from the laws of association, places us in imminent danger. This we make an effort to avoid, which availing nothing, we grow conscious of, a cessation of voluntary influence. End quote. He also goes on to say that lying on one's back, seems to be associated with the onset of nightmares. And even in today's scientific observation trials with sleep studies, there actually is a higher rate of nightmares when individuals sleep on their back. In 1820, Sweetzer wasn't sure why this was. However, we hold his statement about respiration to be true. The symptoms of sleep apnea and snoring tend to be worse when we lie on our back. And perhaps this cessation or interruption of respiration triggers that stressful response. So the findings of Sweetser in 1820 still to a certain extent hold true today. There you have it, the observations about nightmares or incubus or wizard pressing as they used to call it. Now let's get into the core takeaways of today's topic on the neuroscience of Nightmares. <laughs> many theories as to why nightmares occur. The most prominent recent theory is that our brain is creating training scenarios to allow us opportunities for emotion regulation. In other words, our brain is taking a real stressor that we may have in our everyday life and then transforms that stressor into something different or something more abstract to allow us an opportunity to deal with this stressor while we sleep. Nightmares involve many brain regions, including the medial prefrontal cortex, the amygdala, and the interior cingulate cortex. So these are brain regions involved in emotions, but also thought processing as well. Sleep paralysis is quite scary and uncomfortable. It impacts nearly 8% of the general population. Now, sleep paralysis is when an individual wakes up, is clearly conscious, but cannot move for a short period of time. They may even feel a pressure on their chest and may hallucinate or see a scary character at the foot of the bed, for example. This tends to last less than 15 seconds, but it feels much longer for the individual when they report it afterward. Unfortunately, nightmares and sleep paralysis are highly understudied, underreported, and successful treatments are rare and typically target any potential underlying problems. Now let's get into those scientific details. Sporemaker in the journal Sleep Medicine Reviews in 2006 wrote about nightmares. They have been defined as extremely frightening dreams. Nightmares tend to be highly visual and have a complicated plot. They are often characterized by negative feelings like sadness, dread, disgust, and or fear. There are thought to be two types of nightmares. Idiopathic nightmares and post-traumatic nightmares. Now, idiopathic nightmares, meaning that the cause is unknown. Then there's post-traumatic nightmares, which are more severe and distressing, and often are associated with post-traumatic stress disorder or a traumatic event that we went through. Nightmares are characterized by waking up primarily during REM sleep with clear recall of the dream. Now, this is distinct and different from sleep terrors. Sleep terrors arise during non REM sleep and are usually not accompanied by vivid dreams and do not result in awakenings with clear recall of the dream, but often awakening in fright. Nielsen and Levin in the journal Sleep Medicine Reviews in 2007 wrote a great review on nightmares. They wrote that nightmares occur in 2 to 10% of the population. They also tend to be more frequent among children, women, and a wide range of patients with different psychiatric or personality conditions. Several models of nightmare production suggest that nightmares may be implicated in an emotional adaptation function. It has been previously thought that nightmares are present in individuals with high anxiety and stress. However, we are appreciating that this is not always the case. Nightmares are more than a symptom of a larger anxiety syndrome and need to be viewed from a sleep medicine perspective. Nightmares are highly prevalent and are a separate sleep disorder that can and should receive specific treatment. One systematic content analysis found incidences of 62% for fear anxiety and 38% for other negative emotions in nightmares. And that nightmares do disrupt sleep and, sleep and have been associated with other sleep disorders such as night terrors, chronic insomnia, sleep disordered breathing like sleep apnea, although the latter finding applied to post-traumatic nightmares only. In the general population, nightmares have been associated with asthma as well and snoring. Gross and LaVie shared that dreams often have an apneic event, meaning during sleep apnea where respiration stops or is interrupted, and that tends to have this negative tone to dreams and causes kind of a stressful, anxious response in the dreams. An apneic event, or rather its distress associated with it, might induce negative emotions in the dreams and increase the frequency of nightmares. So this also goes back to the data in 1820 where I was talking about how Sweetser was predicting that respiration or interference with their proper breathing during sleep might be what induces nightmares. Nightmares may also be drug-induced or medication-induced. In a review on drug-induced nightmares, Thompson and Pierce noted that beta blockers and alpha agonists account for 34% of the clinical trials with reported nightmares as an adverse effect. A finding had supported, with a recent review as well, that beta blockers affect the norepinephrine receptors, and they were found to lead to nightmare complaints as well. So what are the theories on nightmares? Now, it may be related to stress, it may be related to breathing, but what are the theories behind the content of our nightmares? Like if we really step back and think, what is the psychology? What is the purpose of a nightmare? Well, there are some theories. Freud himself had many thoughts about nightmares. He first postulated that nightmares were a way to keep us asleep while containing feelings of anxiety and might have been an expression of suppressed desires. He believed that our subconscious urges might transform into scary things in order for us to punish ourselves, so to speak. Like, For example, let's say we enjoy alcohol a lot. Maybe we have a nightmare about drinking alcohol. That's our way of our brain trying to right the wrong, so to speak, to try to condition us to not like this thing that we feel bad about liking. He and other scientists later expanded on his theories and postulated that nightmares are a result of us not managing our emotions in the real world, and therefore they manifest in different ways in our nightmares. Hartman's more recent theory on nightmares attempts to identify specific processes underlying emotion regulation during dreaming and nightmares. He proposes that nightmares serve the function of contextualizing an individual's predominant emotional concerns. So let's stop and think about that for a second. Do we have any repeat nightmares? Do we think that could be related to us not managing our emotions in the real world? For example, I used to have two repeat nightmares. I haven't had them in a long time, but one of the nightmares was that I kept having was that my mouth would be full of chewing gum, like really uncomfortably full. And I wanted to speak in the dream, but I just couldn't. The other nightmare I had a few times was that I was driving a car far too recklessly and I wasn't able to step on the brake. I wasn't able to slow down for some reason. I wasn't able to gain control of the car. So if we believe these nightmares are manifestations of our real-world emotions, let's think on these then, the nightmares that I had. Maybe it's very telling. Maybe the nightmare about the gum in my mouth was related to me being afraid to speak up. Maybe I was afraid to speak my mind at that time in my life, or maybe I felt like I couldn't, like I wanted to say something, but I couldn't. I could see that because when I was having these nightmares, I was younger, I was more quiet, I was shy, I was less, less confident than I am now. So I think that nightmare could have been a manifestation of how I was feeling back then. Maybe this driving recklessly nightmare meant I felt out of control in some way. Or maybe these nightmares just meant that I had some stresses that I hadn't dealt with yet. Can you think of any nightmares that you have had or that you currently have? Do they seem to manifest in ways that might portray our real-world stresses? Do they represent emotions that we have consciously but that we just haven't dealt with yet. Another theory about nightmares is the threat simulation model of nightmares. This is an evolutionary theory that provides an opportunity for scenario training, so to speak. The theory postulates that our brain is trying to prepare us for stressful situations and therefore places us in these fake scenarios. These scenarios being primarily around fear and threats. They're like an active rehearsal, of such simulated responses, and as a result, it kind of trains us for threat avoidance skills in in the waking world, and is thought to enhance our behavioral and survival advantages. Fisher and colleagues observed people with frequent nightmares in the clinic. They noted that heart rate and respiration did not change during the nightmare, so they postulated that nightmares might be a way for our brain to help train our body to be calm in times of stress and fear. Do you remember back in episode 117 where I talk about horror movies? Scientists speculated that people who watch horror movies were more resilient during the pandemic. They believed this for two reasons. One, people who enjoy horror movies tend to approach morbid scenarios with curiosity as opposed to emotional reactivity. Second, people who watch horror movies somewhat go through scenario training. Like, when they're watching a scary scene of a movie, they might think, okay, if I were this person in this scenario, I would do this instead. This scenario training might offer an opportunity for emotion regulation as well, meaning we learn to regulate our emotions in scary situations. So we're watching this scary movie, we're frightened, but we're learning how to cope and deal with that in a safe environment. So the scientists speculate a similar thing with nightmares that we may have nightmares as a way to help train us against scary or threatening scenarios in the real world. Now, how about another theory to explain nightmares? This one is called the Affect Network Dysfunction Model. It stipulates that nightmares result from our emotional processes malfunctioning during normal dreaming, and therefore serves the purpose of fear-memory extinction. So, similar to the theory I just proposed, this theory speculates that our brain is attempting to stop fear memories. This is supported by the limbic, paralimbic, and prefrontal regions of our brain. These brain regions constitute the control center for our emotions while we are awake and while we're sleeping. Now our bra- other brain regions that are believed to be involved in the cognitive and emotional components of nightmares are the amygdala, the medial prefrontal cortex, and the interior cingulate cortex as well. So if an individual unfortunately suffers an injury in some of these brain regions, perhaps has had a stroke where these brain regions are involved, perhaps they've had a concussion where these brain regions are involved, it is possible that some of their symptoms while they're recovering could be increased nightmares because these brain regions regulate nightmares in dreaming and cognition while we're sleeping. Koth in the journal Dreaming in 2001 wrote how certain personality traits correlate with individuals that have a high prevalence of nightmares. Now, individuals with frequent nightmares tended to score higher for the presence of neurotic symptoms, including guilt and anxiety. And these were higher versus those that did not predict or did not report having nightmares. Nightmare frequency has been correlated with anxiety, distraction, guilt, dysphoria, and guilt or fear around failure. Hartman back in 1984 found that individuals with frequent nightmares had significantly elevated scores for schizophrenia on the psychopathic deviate and the paranoia scales of the Minnesota multiphasic personality inventory. Hartman in 1981 observed that individuals with frequent nightmares tended to also be creative and artistic, which is interesting. So if you're listening right now, do you battle with having nightmares? Do you feel like any of these personality traits hold true for you? Or anyone else that you know. In this study by Koth in Dreamy in 2001, they had recruited 10 men and 31 women ranging from the age of 19 to 50 years old with the average age being 31. All subjects had no psychiatric diagnosis. The purpose of this clinical trial was to learn more about nightmares and the impact that it can have on the individual's mood. The study design included a four-week period during which sleep quality and dreaming was recorded. So what did the scientists find? There were themes of the participants' nightmares that kept coming up. The most common theme was that people felt that they were being threatened or persecuted. The second most common was that there was an accident or catastrophe. The third was having a violent attack against the dreamer or witnessing a violent attack against others. Illness, animals and other creatures and then also no information or not remembering of the dream content. The consequences of nightmares included physical complaints, negative emotions such as being afraid, discouraged, nervous, restless, or upset. Most of the participants reflected on their dream or tried to interpret it. Sometimes a nightmare encouraged them to change something in their life, like immediate behavioral consequences on the day following the nightmare were observed in a few of the cases. Now, subjects scoring particularly high for the personality trait of neuroticism and those with health concerns indicated experiencing more behavioral consequences of nightmares, meaning that the nightmares made a really big impact on their life. Likewise, following a nightmare, subjects in this category were more distressed by a nightmare and also scored higher on state anxiety test scores. So certain personality traits do seem to be associated with the likelihood to have a nightmare and for the, that nightmare to have a negative impact on someone's life. Have you ever had a nightmare and it impacted you for the whole day? Like, did it leave a lasting emotional feeling with you? It's so funny because myself and some of my friends have talked about this concept of dream cheating. Like, they dreamt that their partner cheated on them. And they woke up feeling really mad toward their partner. Because even though we know it isn't real, our brain made it seem so real. The emotions that we felt, felt real. Now if we think back on these previous theories as to why our brain might create nightmares, why did it do it? For scenario training to deal with emotions that we're not dealing with in the real world, is our brain trying to do this to prepare us for potential heartbreak? To scenario train to give us an opportunity to regulate our emotions? Perhaps. It's an interesting theory, isn't it? Now let's talk about sleep paralysis. Have you heard of this before? Dennis in the journal Sleep Medicine Reviews in 2018 wrote that sleep paralysis is a relatively common but under-researched phenomenon. While the cause of sleep paralysis is unknown, a number of studies have investigated potential risk factors. Sleep paralysis is when we wake up, but we cannot move for a short period of time, even though we may want to move. We could move our eyes and perhaps breathe normally, and our perception of the space around us is quite clear. We feel quite awake. These episodes are frequently associated with a variety of hallucinations, such as a sense of an evil presence, known as intruder hallucinations, Pressure felt on the chest, which is called incubus hallucinations. And illusory feelings of movement, like vestibular motor hallucinations. This, I believe, is what they were talking about back in the 1800s in my foregone fact. The wizard pressing, an in incubus, they used to call it. Some people have described sleep paralysis as waking up, being fully conscious, but they cannot move. And they see a scary light creature at the foot of their bed. In many places, sleep paralysis experiences are interwoven with the culture's folklore. Episodes of sleep paralysis have been suggested as an explanation for paranormal phenomena such as witchcraft, demonic assault, and space alien abduction. Sharpless in the journal Sleep Medicine Reviews in 2011 combined 35 studies that reported lifetime sleep paralysis rates. They noted that 7.6% of the general population reported experiencing sleep paralysis. So that scary, terrifying scenario I just explained, nearly 8% of the general population has experienced that, so it is fairly common. Sleep paralysis in particular seems to impact students at a higher rate, as 28.3% of students reported sleep paralysis, and nearly 32% of patients with a psychiatric illness experienced at least one episode of sleep paralysis as well. So interestingly, of the general population, the two groups that are at a higher rate of having sleep paralysis are students and individuals with a diagnosis of a psychiatric illness. It makes me curious as to why it's students. Is it because of the higher rate of stress, the deadlines, perhaps the lack of sleep or an altered sleep schedule? What is it particularly about a student that would put them at a higher risk for sleep paralysis? I find that really intriguing. Sleep paralysis is a common symptom of narcolepsy, a neurological disorder. Narcolepsy is characterized by excessive daytime sleepiness and sudden brief loss of strength in response to strong emotions such as laughter or anger, as well as having disturbed nocturnal sleeping patterns. In this paper by Dennis in Sleep Medicine in 2018, they included a total of 42 studies and they found a large number of variables that were associated with sleep paralysis and a number of themes emerged. These were stress and trauma, genetic influences, physical illness, personality traits, anomalous beliefs, sleep behavior disorders, symptoms of psychiatric illness, etc. Sleep paralysis appears to be particularly prevalent in post-traumatic stress disorder and to a lesser degree, panic disorder. Now let's get more specific about the correlations they found in this review. General experiences with potentially traumatic events, such as an assault, death of a loved one, disasters, these were found to be related to sleep paralysis. There did appear to be moderate genetic influences, estimated about 53% of the variation could be predicted by genetic influence. A number of specific genes involved in circadian cycles were also examined, and specific polymorphisms or SNPs of a gene called PER2, or P-E-R-2, was associated with sleep paralysis. So it is possible that sleep paralysis may run in the family, so to speak. Body mass index, interestingly, was not found to be related to whether someone reported having experienced sleep paralysis during their lifetime. In a university sample, a composite measure of imaginativeness that included absorption, fantasy, magical thinking, imagery vividness, paranormal and mystic beliefs, perceptual aberration and unusual sensory experiences were related to having sleep paralysis with a higher frequency and a greater intensity. Sleep paralysis episodes are more most likely to occur when the individual is lying in the subpoena position, meaning on their back. So again, that observation made back in 1820 still appears to hold true today. So if we are prone to experiencing nightmares or sleep paralysis, perhaps not sleeping on our back may be of assistance. Can you think back on when you've had nightmares? Do you by chance recall how you were lying or laying and what position you were in? Interestingly, sleep paralysis appeared to be most prominent in the first hour after bedtime. In a large population-level study, insomnia disorder was not associated with increased prevalence of sleep paralysis. However, non-restorative sleep, a common symptom of insomnia, was associated with sleep paralysis. Anxiety-related symptoms also do appear to be associated with sleep paralysis, although this is not always found in all of the studies. Unfortunately, treatments for sleep paralysis do not really exist. Anecdotally, individuals report getting through an episode of sleep paralysis better when they can focus on moving parts of their body a little bit at a time. So for example, if they wake up in a fright and they feel like they can't move, thinking about wiggling their toes or their fingers helps them get through that paralysis episode more quickly. Many times, physicians will search for an underlying diagnosis of a psychiatric illness and choose to treat that and see sleep paralysis as secondary to the psychiatric illness. Sometimes this is an effective strategy. However, there often is not a psychiatric illness coupled with sleep paralysis. Perhaps it's more so associated with difficult and changing sleep schedules or someone going through a stressful event. In these scenarios, doing what we can to obtain regular sleep schedules and managing our stress might be of assistance. The influence of our respiration on nightmares is really intriguing, that if we snore, if we have sleep apnea, or somehow our breathing is obstructed, that seems to send a stress signal and might increase the prevalence of nightmares. So trying to treat those underlying problems might be of assistance as well. It's interesting because that might be the mechanism by which lying on one's back increases the prevalence of nightmares, because it's thought that sleep apnea and snoring might be worse when we're lying on our back. Maybe that's why nightmares are more prevalent when we lie on our back as well. So that is a wrap, my people scientist army, the neuroscience and psychology of nightmares. There are many theories as to why we might have nightmares. That might be a manifestation of our suppressed desires, according to Freud. Or there might be a manifestation in an abstract way of the stresses and anxieties that we have in the real world that we haven't really yet dealt with. Another theory is that nightmares are a scenario training paradigm to allow us to better be prepared for scenarios and threats in the future, to give us an opportunity for emotion regulation, so to speak. Just like horror movies might do that, like I talk about back in episode 117. Now, many brain regions are involved in nightmares, such as the amygdala, the medial prefrontal cortex, and the interior cingulate cortex. Sleep paralysis is very common, affecting nearly 8% of the general population. We don't have a great understanding of sleep paralysis, nor great treatments. However, there are some small indications and insights, such as perhaps trying to sleep on our back less, and trying to treat underlying problems such as stress, anxiety, and working through traumatic events that we may be able to better cope with them and not have to cope with them in our dreams, so to speak. If you have any questions or comments, please do feel free to reach out to me through social media. I use Instagram the most if you by chance have the choice of social media platform. If you by chance want to buy me a coffee to say thank you for the episode, you can do so via the links in the description box to this show too. I hope that this episode was interesting and insightful for all of you. I know I found it really cool. So happy Halloween or early happy Halloween to all of you. I hope that you have a wonderful two weeks and I look forward to meeting you back here in two weeks time. Bye for now. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discuss are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, Please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates.